Hello. Good afternoon, and thank you for coming to this talk. Uh, my name is Ruslan. I work at Netflix on productivity engineering teams. And today I'd like to discuss a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is role of central teams in organizations, specifically organizations that uh, embrace the DevOps uh, practices and cultures. But first, let, let me ask a question. Let me sort of open it up by a question. Who needs central teams? What are they good for? Right? Before we get to discuss the pros and cons and various challenges, let's define what we mean by central teams. Typically, when a company starts, it's small, it's typically flat. You have a number of teams that are working on their own functional areas. They figure out ways to collaborate pretty easily because the company is small. Things are good. Then as the company grows, something happens. Central teams form, and they might take a different name depending on your organization uh, structure and culture. You might call them infrastructure, tools, platform, etc. But the nature of those teams is still the same. They centralize certain functions. Of course, as the organization grows, it becomes larger and more complex. Certain fractal nature of, uh, of the central organizations also forms. You may have fully central organizations. Again, you may call them infrastructure, platform, etc. Uh, you may have centralized organizations or local central teams that are specific to a business unit that create uh, common solutions for those business units that don't necessarily straddle across, uh, across the different departments. So with this definition, let's talk about the cloud. Why are we talking about central teams and DevOps? Because you might be early on your cloud journey, you might already be fully in a cloud, but cloud did something that changed the game. It freed the engineers to do the right thing without waiting for approvals, without waiting for the servers to be racked up. Uh, all of your resources are just an API call away. And that freed up engineers to do so much, and it also gave rise to the practice of DevOps. Now, before DevOps, what you would refer as a classical uh, model, you typically had three main engineering functions. You had development teams, you had operations teams, and then you had QA teams, all trying to work together. And very rarely, them trying to work together actually worked out well, because the incentives were misaligned. Development teams typically want to move things forward, deploy new features, create new capabilities, etc. where the motivations for QA team were really to prevent any possibility of error ever making it to production. And the incentives and motivations for operations teams were to maintain outmost availability. Thus, maintaining status quo was probably the easiest thing to do. And that created certain organizational dysfunctions, tensions, conflicts, and overall impeded progress. Now, with DevOps model, it's a lot more streamlined. Now your engineering teams own the full cycle end-to-end. -end. They are responsible for the architecture, the design, the implementation, the testing, canarying and deployment, and of course, they're the ones who's gonna get called if or when something breaks, and they're the ones who's gonna be fixing it in the middle of the night if necessary. So now that you have all these teams that are fully empowered, in charge of their destiny, able to do what they need to, to get their job done, once again, why do you need central teams? Right? Well, before, before we go deeper in that, let's examine the software development lifecycle. Uh, this is our uh, visualization and representation uh, for a typical software development lifecycle at Netflix. Yours might differ slightly, but I bet there are stages that are very similar 
uh, too many organizations, no matter what business you're in. Uh, for us, we have this interesting step called init where um, we have a framework called generators. If an uh, engineer needs to write a new application, uh, the, the generators will uh, create, based on some questions and answers, uh, necessary boilerplate framework so engineers don't have to start from scratch. Uh, but then that's where your cycle truly starts. You start implementing your business logic. You might do some iteration and testing on your laptop. Uh, eventually, you'll make it to test environment. You're going to run a little bit more involved testing, maybe um, a smoke test, integration test, et cetera. And eventually, you say, you know, this is good enough. I'm going to deploy it to production. Then our continuous delivery tool, Spinnaker, kicks in. Uh, we'll canary the changes. We'll make sure that it works on a small number of instances, perhaps a single instance, before rolling it out to the full production. And then it runs. So you're done, right? Well, not quite. You still need to make sure that you have appropriate telemetry. You need to still need to ensure that you have alerting set up. Uh, and of course, you need to make sure that your application stays health healthy as, as traffic could ramp up uh, and uh, evolve it and maintain it or tend to it if it gets unhealthy as necessary. So there's a whole bunch of loops and cycles and, uh, and other dynamics in this very simplified diagram. But what you'll notice is that all these stages and all these stage transitions have nothing to do with a specific business part. They're orthogonal to whether you're writing a recommendation engine, a UI, uh, or a backend logic. And so they're common to pretty much every single developer that we have at Netflix. And therefore, the next question is, how many of these common systems do you really need? How many build systems, or CI frameworks, or continuous delivery tools, uh, or logging infrastructures, or monitoring and alerting um, systems, or app runtime frameworks, and I could go on, the list is very long, but how many of these would you really like to have? How many dashboarding solutions would you like to, uh, to see in different flavors and querying mechanisms when your systems go down and you have to triage them and you have to bring them up? And for us, the answer is as few as possible. Now, in some cases, one is that magic number. We'd like to really bring it down to one. In some cases, there are some differing needs that, uh, that necessitate a number that's larger than one, but hopefully still very small. And so that's really the, the main value of central teams. Central teams create leverage. They create common solutions for common problems that can straddle across various engineering teams and provide that value so engineers can focus on, on what's truly meaningful to them, uh, creating that business logic, creating their UI, creating the backend services, and focusing effectively on the, the most impactful part of their jobs and not worrying about the underlying infrastructure or plumbing. Now, there are many ways of how central teams can create that leverage. Uh, typically, when people hear leverage, they only think about, you're just going to raise a level of abstraction for me, whether it's PaaS or FAS. Uh, but that's not the only way. Uh, you can create better tooling and, uh, and other components we'll talk about. So if that's the value, let's talk about some of the challenges that we encountered at Netflix, our journey in our maturing central teams. Uh, and some of the best practices and anti-patterns that we found. Probably the most unique problem to us to Netflix is due to our culture. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Netflix culture, we're all about freedom and responsibility. And that creates an interesting dilemma for central teams. We do not have the power of mandate. Teams and engineers don't have to use, utilize uh, our solutions if they 
don't want to. If our solutions do not provide sufficient value, then engineering teams may choose something else. They may choose a third-party solution, an open-source solution, or roll their own. And so that creates a challenge, but it's also a value for us because that means that if our solutions are being adapted, if our solutions are being used, that means that we are providing the best-of-breed solutions, that we are listening to our customer needs and satisfying the requirements. And so therefore, adoption, or rate of adoption, became our most used metrics of success. Among these a few others, but really is, is our stuff being used? And if not, it becomes a really important signal to figure out why and where are we falling short. Additional challenge that we found through the years is that it's really important not just to figure out for yourself what you're optimizing for, but also align with the rest of your organization on what you're optimizing for. Again, this is a very simplified diagram on your typical dimensions um, of uh, what engineering uh, teams may optimize for. Uh, in this particular case, it's developer velocity or productivity, systems availability, and the overall business efficiency. Uh, but there may be others. But even if you take a look at these three dimensions, figuring out and aligning with the rest of your organization of where you want to be is important because that will make sure that your solutions actually apply to the problems that people face. For example, going back to sort of different size and maturity organizations, if you're a smaller startup, if you're young and uh, less mature, probably I would bet the most important thing for you is developer velocity. You want to experiment fast, you want to move fast, you want to break things and learn fast, and therefore you probably are willing and able to compromise some of that availability and some of that efficiency. At the same time, as your company matures and you gain users, uh, availability becomes more important. If your site is down, if your app is not working, that creates unhappy users. And so now you actually want to optimize a little bit more for availability, perhaps sacrificing some of that early developer velocity that you had before. And of course, if you're lucky and become a lot more successful with a lot more users and scale, efficiency does become important later on. Because every inefficiency that you can ignore at the smaller scale multiplies it, adds up, and then when you're running at insane scale and uh, you're leaving a lot of money on the table, that's probably not gonna be a good situation. So figuring this out is important, but as important is making sure that you are aligned with your customers. Because if, if a customer thinks that it's all about velocity and you're saying, hey, this quarter or two quarters we're gonna be working on efficiency, chances are there's gonna be some tensions. There's gonna be some gaps and some uncomfortable conversations. Another interesting dilemma is how fast or slow should you be adapting latest and greatest technologies? This is a joke graph, please don't take it seriously. Uh, but it does illustrate a point. There are dangers on both sides of, this, uh, on the, on both sides of the extreme and the spectrum. If you're such an eager, early adapter that you're basically chasing whatever latest, latest and greatest, you're effectively making a lot of bets. And that's the nature of bets. Some of them are not gonna work out. But as a role as a responsibility of central teams is to figure out which bets do you take. Because if you take every bet and some of them don't work out, you're gonna create so much churn for your customers. Here's technology A, use it, it's great. Three months later, sorry, we're discontinuing it. Couple of those cycles and you're gonna lose, lose trust with your customers. Even greater danger is on the opposite side of the spectrum and this is where this enterprise IT adoption life cycle comes in. If you're so conservative and you're coming in too slow, 
by the time you're offering a piece of technology or solution, chances are your customers already moved on. They either created a shadow IT problem by creating their own solutions in the dark, uh, or you're just unable to keep up. And so the challenge that we constantly deal with is figuring out where is the balance in that spectrum. At which point do we know that a particular bet might be worth making, and at which point, uh, at which point do we engage? And so over the years, we've developed um, the following mental model that's internal to us that we try to use when considering various technologies and, uh, and alternative solutions. When technology or solution is in early phases where it's still very nascent and the certainty of bet is unclear, effectively the pioneering stage, we observe. We try to understand the technology, what, what needs it's solving, and what alternatives it has, and also risks, benefits, costs, etc. But we don't quite yet engage because the, the certainty of that bet is still very low. If we see a particular piece of technology or solution starting to gain traction, starting to get to that first inflection point on the S-curve, on the maturity curve, we engage. We start working a little bit closer with the team that pioneered that particular solution, and again, try to understand it from Central Team's point of view. Is it gonna scale if it's gonna become truly successful? Does it have all the security attributes? Uh, what kind of inefficiency characteristics does it have to try to anticipate of if and when this particular solution becomes successful, what challenges are we gonna have to deal with in a later stage of maturity? So this is where we engage. At some point, if technology truly takes off and become nearly ubiquitous, this is the second point on the uh, inflection point on the S-curve. This is where we come in and we centralize the support for it. Because at that point, it becomes inefficient for one or two or three or a dozen teams to provide support for the same thing. And this is where we as a central team can provide leverage. So this is the mental model we've been following and so far it's been working pretty well. At the same time, we're still, um, we're still trying to evolve it and create a little bit more uh, fine-tuned frameworks of how we operate. Uh, I'm curious after the talk if you have any models that you find successful. I'm curious to learn from that. Another very common challenge is build versus buy. Now, Netflix, we embraced the cloud very early uh, and at pretty large scale. And uh, back in the day, we ended up implementing quite a few things that, that simply did not exist. But since then, in the last 10 years, cloud ecosystem grew and matured by leaps and bounds. And uh, now, we're, um, when we consider a, a, a gap, when we need a solution, chances are good that there are really good, whether it's AWS-provided solutions, open-source solutions, or third-party third vendor solutions. Uh, and obviously, we don't want to build the world. We don't want to implement everything. And so, again, our mental model, our sort of rule of frameworks, uh, uh, framework of rules, if you will, is the following. If we identify a need, and the need is common, that central team needs to get engaged, we take a look and see if there is AWS solution that's, that's available to us. That's gonna work for our functionality, scale, cost efficiency, security, all of those considerations. And of course, it needs to integrate really well into Netflix e ecosystem. And if such solution is available, we would rather use that and just be happy. If for whatever reason such solutions are not available, uh, then we try to evaluate open source tools and solutions. Even if such open source tools and solutions may only satisfy, let's say, 80% of the use cases or solve 80% of the problem. Because there may just may be a possibility that we're able to contribute back and together lift the technology to the point where it's gonna satisfy our needs. 
And we've done it before with technologies like Cassandra uh, or uh, more recently Kafka. If such, if such um, situations are not possible and there is no third-party vendor solution that we could also utilize, then and only then we'll write something that's bespoke that works for us, that's like fully integrated and, and solves the problem. Uh, but again, whenever you write something, you create something that now you're going to have to maintain and evolve for years to come, and so these are not decisions to be taken lightly. It's really fun to write it. It's all that other stuff that comes for a decade later that you need to consider. This is a practice that we've learned uh, over the last few years. We, we started our Netflix open source program back in 2012. Uh, and that, that really worked well for us. Uh, the practice is open source what you build. Uh, back when we started the Netflix open source program, cloud ecosystem was uh, pretty nascent. There weren't as many mature solutions as there are now. And what we found is that sometimes the solutions that we built for ourselves actually resonated with the community. They were not common just across various Netflix teams, they were common across the industry. And so we started open sourcing most of our infrastructure at this point bit by bit. Uh, and some solutions uh, resonated with the community more than others. Probably the most successful example is uh, Spinnaker, which is our uh, uh, continuous delivery solution. Uh, at this point, it's being used by many, many companies in the industry, uh, and uh, we're actually benefiting from community contributions as well. Um, AWS actually just did a, a great contribution. Google did one earlier, and so the, com the strong community is forming. And that's what open source really is. It's about forming a strong community and becoming stronger together. Now, Spinnaker is a great success example. There were many others where we open sourced, and I think this is the best thing since sliced bread, and it wasn't so much. It didn't resonate. People didn't use it. People didn't contribute. And that in itself was a super valuable signal to us that maybe the ecosystem and the community evolve faster and farther than it did internally. And it was a good signal to consider third-party open source solutions to replace our own homegrown. This is another lesson that we learned over the years. It's a lot easier to impart the knowledge on the new engineers as they join your company when you're small. Everybody knows everybody. Your ecosystem is small enough that you can still have a good picture of it in your head, and you know that if you press something here, something will pop there. You understand all the side effects. You understand uh, the ecosystem of tools and solutions available. Not so much as you grow. As you grow, not everybody knows everybody. As you grow, you don't quite understand the complex interplay between various, various systems and teams. And so um, uh, recently we started funding and really investing into our developer education a lot more. Where now we have a series of boot camps where if an engineer joins us, we expose them to the most important part of the common team solutions, things like the continuous delivery, things like the continuous integration and testing practices and so on and so forth to make sure that the most important best practices and patterns are imbued from the very start. Another thing that we did not fully appreciate before and now are investing is the continuous education. Would an engineer that joined your company three, four years ago be fully up to date on what your central teams are offering today. Chances are not really without some active effort um, and, and, and programs that are structured to help them. And so these are the things that we're really heavily investing into right now to build a little bit more consistency uh, of best practices and patterns and bring all of the engineering teams up to the latest and greatest solutions that are available today. 
Another interesting challenge that is very much linked to developer education is discoverability. And what I mean by that is that if you have a new engineer in a team or an existing one, and you need to write a new application that requires some, some solutions or, or tooling, where do you go and find out if such tooling exists? And if you don't have a good discoverability tool or other solutions that are dynamic, that are not stale in nature, chances are you're encouraging fragmentation. And we'll talk about fragmentation very soon. This challenge is very, very much linked to the prior one, uh, but it's, uh, it's a lot more ongoing. How do you effectively communicate all of these changes that are constantly happening? The new tools that you roll out, the new capabilities of those tools, the bug fixes, the performance uh, enhancements. For example, there were so many announcements that happened at this uh, AWS reInvent, it's very hard to keep up. Now imagine if such pace would continue throughout the year. How, how do you keep up, right? And, and so for us, for the central teams, figuring out this interesting formula of what communication channels are effective. Is it newsletters? Is it emails? Is it uh, brown bag lunches or boot camps? Uh, is it roadshows where you go and visit this particular team or that particular team and inform them uh, of solutions that are available? And what we found, there is no silver bullet here. It takes all of those communication channels going at full speed just to barely keep up. And so effective communication uh, to the point where you feel like you're over communicating is, is actually pretty crucial. Another interesting challenge that we constantly have to explore is how generalized or specialized should be the tools that you build. And it's an interesting balance there. The more generalized solutions that you offer, clearly the more leverage you're gonna provide because they're gonna cover the largest swath of use cases. Of course, there is a danger there. If you try to overgeneralize too much, you're gonna build the lowest common denominator and it's not gonna be very useful to anybody. On the opposite side of the spectrum is when you build fully integrated vertical solutions, sort of the, the one single tasker, where they're great to do this one thing and one thing only, but then you lose that leverage because suddenly you're only helping one of your 20 customers. And so figuring out that balance uh, is sometimes tricky. The approach that worked for us pretty well over the years is whatever set of solutions and functionalities we create, we try to make them extensible we try to make it somewhat easier for the developers in the teams to fill those gaps. Another thing that we realized over the years is that, hey, we have this great fledgling uh, open source program. We welcome contributions from outside world, but not so much internally, why is that? And that was an interesting realization, and since then we've been encouraging the culture and practices of inner open source, where developers, no matter what team you're on, if you see a gap, if you want to enhance any of the central team solutions, we welcome those pull requests and we will work with you to make sure that they integrate it really well. Product management. This is an interesting one. For many years, central teams at Netflix did not have dedicated product managers. So how did it work? Our engineering leaders, our teams were effectively wearing that hat. We were building the relationship and communication channels with our customers and partners. We were collecting the requests and then we were prioritizing the work to figure out uh, where, uh, where we're gonna create most leverage, where we're gonna create the most impact for the company. And that worked, but up to a certain point. 
at some point you are at a scale and complexity where this skill set becomes really, really important to do right. And I think it's a credit to our engineering leaders and our teams that we were able to sustain it up to this point, but now we recognize that this is one area where we should specialize. And so now we're actually building a dedicated program manage product management function for central teams that will not only do all the things that engineers and uh, engineering leaders used to do before, but also bring that skill set you know, to, to, to proper fruition, where to try to understand how various requests interplay, what general patterns we, uh, we can uh, understand from them, and again, enhance their effectiveness as central teams and, lever and leverage providers. Finding the right engagement model is also important. Now, if you go back to the three stages I described before, when your organization is small and flat, this problem does not exist. You work with each other pretty well. As you grow and you create your central teams, again, no matter how you call them, infrastructure, tooling, platform, uh, suddenly you establish a customer provider relationship with all of your application teams. And that's great, it works really well for the central teams because you get to provide leverage, but it doesn't work universally. And so as your company gets larger and more complex, you may form what's called a local central team where you have a centralized team in specific departments or business units. And if your fully centralized team interfaces with the local central teams, the relationship changes slightly because the local central teams are now more of your partners than customers, where you work together to figure out how deep you should, again, create solutions for them, how vertically integrated should it be, versus how generic and, uh, and straddling multiple use cases your solution should be. And so it really changes from customer to, to a lot more of a partner. Uh, and again, if you take a look at the fractal nature of this, uh, of this relationship, uh, for all of us who are in the cloud, AWS technically is our more fundamental central team, where they provide a lot more centralized infrastructure for us. In software, change is inevitable. It happens all the time. And part of our role in central teams is making sure that your company does not stagnate, that you don't somehow end up on a six-year-old solution that now you cannot patch up for security vulnerabilities and such. And as such, we end up doing a lot of campaigns, a lot of company-wide uh, changes, if you will, to, to move things forward. Uh, and whether it's something as trivial as just upgrading to a next Java major version, or something a little bit more involved, like patching security vulnerability, changing how you deal with uh, certificates uh, and trust, uh, or it could be even more breaking as changing RPC framework or runtime framework. From time to time, we have to deal with all of that. And yet again, it comes, it comes about the balance. And the balance here is this. If you don't push enough, you're gonna become stale. And the things that you're operating on are gonna be more and more obsolete and cause you a whole slew of problems. But if you push too fast, if you push too much, you create what we call internally a red queen's race, where you run as fast as you can, maybe even as fast as this guy, just to stay in place. And th that, that situation is highly undesirable because then to our application team, central teams just becomes the tax bearers. Hey, here, do this for us, and that, and that, and that. And at the end of the day, they're unable to accomplish what they actually been hired and paid to do. 
So finding that balance is, is really, really uh, crucial. Figuring out what are the key migrations that you want to do and when, and spreading them over time so the application teams actually can, can breathe and, uh, and do their day job as well. And each individual migration, you also need to worry about your adoption curve. You're gonna have people who are eager and able to adapt new things early and fast, no problem. Then you're gonna have your main body of, uh, of adapters when things are a little bit more mature. But your migrations are typically not done until you're done with that long tail of systems and people for whom the old stuff just works. And there's nothing wrong with that, but then again, it becomes a balance between the local optimum, what works for one or two teams, versus what's good for the company, which is moving things forward. This is a challenge that's ongoing, it never ends, uh, and how to avoid that Red Queen's race or stagnation is super tricky. Another thing that happens as you grow bigger, you don't just have one central team. You're gonna have multiples of them. And they're gonna have their own areas of focus and priorities. For example, for us, on, on a high level, we have central platform teams, central data engineering teams, and central security teams. And as the name suggests, our areas of focus and priorities are slightly in, in, in different aspects of the software development cycle. And so what happens if we don't become aligned about what's important, what's urgent, what are the critical campaigns, what are the priorities, we may easily overload our mutual customers. Because we may think from our perspective, hey, just do this one little thing for us, upgrade Java. And then somebody from security comes in, hey, just do this one little thing for us, upgrade your certificate authority. And somebody from data infrastructure comes in and says, oh, this is really tiny, would you mind migrating to a different stream processing engine? And all in itself, that might be trivial, they're, they're not, but might be perceived as trivial. But altogether, it, it's, it's forbid, the cost is forbiddingly high. And so aligning with central teams before we approach our customers is the lesson we learn sometimes the hard way. Fragmentation is what happens when that alignment does not work. Uh, one of the principles at Netflix of how we work together as engineering teams, sometimes we say we're highly aligned, loosely coupled. That loose coupling is a lot easier to achieve the tight alignment. And what happens, fragmentation is effectively where you have more than one solution for the same problem. And again, sometimes it may not be a bad thing, but if you have, let's say, 12 workflow managers, it may be a bad thing. So why does fragmentation happen? What we found is that there are two main sources of fragmentation. One of them is accidental. And we talked about it before when engineers or teams re-implement an existing solution simply because they aren't aware that something like this already exists. That there is a solution that may satisfy 80, 90, or even 100% of their use case. And the, and the solutions, how we're dealing with that is again going back to effective communication, going back to effective um, developer education, and really making sure that the discoverability and the, the awareness is as much as we can. It's never gonna be 100%. I don't think we can ever completely avoid it. But at the same time, if we can minimize it, we can minimize the potential waste of uh, time and energy and resources and use it for something that's a lot more valuable. The other type of fragmentation is a lot more difficult, the deliberate fragmentation. This is when the engineers or teams know about central team solutions existing, 
but still choose to do something else. And to us, this is a really important signal that we listen really carefully to. Why? We go and engage and ask, start asking, why did you choose to use something else? Whether it's rolling your own or whether it's using third-party solutions. Because this is an important signal to understand where did our solution come short? It might have been a misunderstanding about systems capabilities. We may have missed uh, a few things in documentation, or it could be a real gap. And we can only improve and get better if we understand where that gap is and then work to solve it. So dealing with fragmentation uh, is important. What we found is that reducing fragmentation, coalescing a number of parallel solutions that already exist is a lot higher, is a lot harder than preventing fragmentation from forming in the first place. So these are the challenges, but you know, role of central teams is not just challenges, there are some, some good things as well, and so some of the more positive lessons uh, that we found. Uh, this one I'm gonna repeat because it's super important. If you're able to identify what dimensions you're optimizing for, if you're able to figure out what are the trade-offs that you're making, what stage of maturity your company is and what stage of maturity your clients are, then you'll actually be more successful in delivering solutions that are solving the right type of problems for your customers. Sometimes building the right culture and behaviors is really by modeling the, the behaviors that you want to see. And so for us, every time our solutions get adopted, no matter how small or big they are, we celebrate it. Because if adoption is our key metric to success, we better celebrate what's important to us. And when that doesn't happen, again, it's a signal to go in and understand and learn more and hopefully figure out how to get the solution adapted. Or perhaps find out that there's a better alternative. And last but not least, it's not all about KPIs. Uh, we're engineers, sometimes we try to be data-driven completely. And there's nothing wrong with metrics, but sometimes metrics don't allow you to see forest from the trees. And so, for example, for us, for developer productivity, we try to measure the overall speed of how engineers and systems move through the software lifecycle. How long does it take from your um, code check-in or pull request to the application running um, in production? And that's a good part of the story, but it's not a complete story. Because what is missing is really, are your customers happy? Are they using your solutions begrudgingly because the, there is no other alternative? Or are you actually delighting them? Are you making them so happy that they're, they're telling all their colleagues and friends about your solutions? And that's, that's our goal, that's what, that's what we're really striving for, and so actually going and talking to your customers, to your fellow engineers, and just asking simple questions. Are you happy? What's working? What's not? What we can do better is super crucial. Well, with that, I hope this was useful, uh, this overview into the roles and dynamics of central teams. Uh, we have a bit of time. I'm happy to engage in a Q&A or potentially learn about your practices that you find valuable. Um, and one more thing before you leave, if you can give us feedback on this session uh, using the, the app survey, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, for Q&A, if you don't mind using microphones, that'd be great. Not, can't reach it, really. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, I had a question about, for example, the guardrails. Uh, is there a central team which has like a role on it, or how have you managed that? 
like the guardrails. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed the question. Uh, what is the role of the central teams in your organization regarding the guardrails? Thank you. So, so the question was about how, how the, the concept of guardrails and the role of central teams interplay in the organization. Uh, for Netflix, the culture of freedom and responsibility is paramount, and therefore central teams or no, no team can, can really be uh, gatekeepers to stop, pre basically prevent or slow down progress of other teams. At the same time, guardrails is a slightly different uh, concept. Guardrails is that like those things on the side of the road that prevents you from going down in a ditch. Uh, and so that's actually very strongly uh, implemented and encouraged in all of our tooling. For example, the tool that every engineer uses every day, Spinnaker, there is tons of guardrails to make sure that accidentally I will not make a global change where I only need to make a change for this one cluster. Uh, or if I, I don't accidentally try to push a very risky change during the busiest time of the day for us. And so things like that, we just try to serve and says, are you sure you want to do this? Here's some additional context but then they still stick to our freedom and responsibility culture of letting engineers and teams make their own choices and be responsible for them. Hopefully that answers the question. First, great presentation. Thank you very much. You. Um, one question that I had was the interaction model between your internal customers and your internal centralized teams. The organizational model that you've displayed made a lot of sense, but how do your consumers actually communicate, put in requests, one concern that I've always had with central teams is they turn into ticket hubs. So you end up actually just having tickets and that's not exactly the most interactive way to deal with your customers. Indeed, so, so if I understand the question is about the dynamics of understanding the customer needs and, uh, and really making sure that we're on the same page. As we were smaller, it was a lot easier. Basically, most of the things were requests and feature requests or, uh, or um, enhancement requests were a result of just one-on-one -on -one conversation or maybe a team-on-team -team lunch or something or other, but it was very informal, very, uh, very social. But as we started to scale out, that became just simply not scalable enough. Uh, so as a, as a company culture, sort of communication culture, a few years back, we migrated from being presentation-heavy into document-based culture. And so now, in addition, not, not as a replacement, but in addition to all these person-to-person conversations, we're also typically publishing documents and say, hey, for this quarter, for this uh, period of time, what do you think you need? And aggregate it. And that doesn't, doesn't mean that everything that, that is asked is going to get done, but at least gives us visibility into the overall patterns that are needed. The other necessary part to that is actually getting back and say, hey, we heard you. Here's what we're gonna do, here's what I commit to doing, and here's what we're not gonna do. Because then the teams who requested it need to be able to make their own choices. Well, if central teams is not gonna satisfy my request in let's say next three to six months, am I okay waiting? Is it nice to have? Or do I need it so badly that I'm gonna go and now implement my own? But it's best that they find out ahead of time rather than by surprise, oh, we decided not to do it six months ago. That, that's how you break trust. Hopefully that answers your question. I did, thank you very much. Thank you for the, uh, the, uh, the presentation. The, the mandate that you have when you engineer your central solutions, uh, is that advisory or is there actually a mandate where local teams must adopt these, these central solutions? And is that mandate show up in the hierarchy? Is there authority in the organizational structure that enforces this mandate? 
and, and finally, how do you resolve conflicts? I see your solutions, I know about them, but I'm still not convinced. How do you resolve that? Thank you. Uh, it's a really great question, so let me break it down in two parts. Um, one is what kind of mandate do we or do we not have? And uh, I think I mentioned in the presentation that we don't have a power of mandate. We offer our solutions to, to the teams um, and engineers in hopes that they provide sufficient value, that not using them is actually cost, is a distraction. Uh, and in a very rare cases, mainly in a security domain, there are some things that are simply non-negotiable, then hey, you gotta do this. But by and large, it's a choice, it's always a choice. Now, with that freedom for every engineering team at Netflix also comes responsibility. Because we expect good judgment call. We expect people to make those judgment calls responsibly. And so just because, let's say, I'm a Ruby guy and your solution is in Java, that's not a good choice. That's not a good reason, right? There has to be business reasons and business value that's anchored. The second one is really, really good question. How do we deal with conflicts? How do we deal with the differences of opinions? Uh, and this is actually something, an area where we're still striving to evolve. There will be times, inevitably, where there is more than one way to achieve something. After some deliberation, as long as the proper research and data analysis is done, central teams may choose a solution that may or may not work for all the teams. So one assumption that we make is that we're not gonna try to do everything for everyone, that there will be times where we're simply unable to satisfy everybody. That's one. And two is whenever there is a difference of opinion that let's say me and my peer are unable to resolve, then we'll just uh, escalate, in a good sense of escalate, uh, to our managers, and then try to find, again, a common ground. And there will be times where fragmentation is inevitable, where we're simply unable to come to the same terms. But as long as we're transparent and deliberate about it, then we know that all the I's are dotted. Um, I have two different questions. So first thing is about, um, if we are in an early stage of DevOps transformation, where one, one central team has already expertised on the tools where we want to go, and all other teams are not still aware of it, or like they don't understand the process yet, right? So is it a good time to give them the freedom to choose the tools they want to use? Or um, it, it's, it's good if it comes from the central teams that these are the tools we already automated and will be helpful for you to use. So that's one. Um. Let me see if I understand the question. It's basically how much freedom do we give engineers to, to choose right. the different tool sets? Right. So our engineers ultimately have full freedom to choose whatever tool sets there are in existence. But again, with that freedom comes certain cost and responsibility. And mainly because over time, our Netflix environment, our ecosystem became highly opinionated of how we do logging of how we log metrics and uh, telemetry, how we integrate with security, trust, and certificates. Right. And so the benefit of using some of the central team's offering is that all of that integration is taken care of for you. They're what you call a production ready. And so if you choose them, then a lot of things happen magically for you. Right. If you decide to choose something else, you become responsible of doing all that work and integration. And that's not a challenge to be taken lightly mm -hmm. because it will be running in production and it will break, and there might be security vulnerabilities, and suddenly there is nobody there to help you yeah. because you decided to go off the paved path. Right, okay, thank you. And uh, one more thing is, do you have any process for feedback of, to get from the central teams already, or do you have any suggestion how we can get feedback on when we are evolving in the process? 
There, uh, I'm sorry, there was an echo. I didn't catch it. Uh, so uh, feedback mechanism using central teams, right? So uh, everybody have different opinions where, when we are setting up a new process. So we get feedback and uh, improve. So do you have already a process for this where you, you have a feedback mechanism or do you have any suggestion how we can do this? Uh, thank you. Uh, so so the, the question was about the, the process of feedback. How, 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 how do we gather it? Um, first, a little bit again of a cultural background that Netflix process is all, almost like a, the word process is almost like a four letter word. Uh, we try to shy away from a, any process that we view for the sake of process. That being said, asking for feedback in a rigorous and structured manner is important. And this is where we're still learning. Uh, historically, it, the, the company and the culture were still very heavy relationship based. And so we relied on this human connections to get that candid. Uh, unfiltered feedback. And if something is bad, if something just not up to par, we want to know about it, right? We don't want to just hear great stuff, right? Um, but in many times, despite our culture of feedback and candor, uh, feedback is not going to come voluntarily. And so what we got into cadence of actually going out and asking. Uh, and surveys were historically frowned upon before, but as of a couple of years ago, we actually started sending out surveys and, uh, and we get, be getting really good, good signal. Sometimes people just get too busy. It's not for the lack of uh, you know, malintent or lack of, lack of candor or courage. It is just get too busy. And when that ping comes, when they say, hey, by the way, what do you think about it? It becomes super valuable. And even if you don't get 100% coverage, 30% of people reply, it still becomes super valuable. Great presentation, Ruslan, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you can share your insight about the size of central teams, and specifically what I'm looking for, do you find that with time, the size of the central team grows um, proportionally either with the number of new applications, new components, or the overall engineering organizations, and how do you manage that? It's a great question. So the question, if I understand that correctly, was uh, size of the central teams mm -hmm. as it pertains to the overall size and complexity of the company. Right. Uh, I would love to give you a mathematical formula, but so far I haven't found any. Um, the way we try to think about it, is, again, is leverage. Effectively, if we grow at the same speed as the rest of the company, basically at the same slope as the rest of the company grows, by that definition, our leverage is not increasing. We're maintaining it, but we're not increasing it. If we grow faster than the rest of the organization, then actually our leverage is decreasing because now you have more investment for, for the lesser spread out and outcome. And so our goal is actually grow sublinearly to the rest of our organization over time. And if we're able to do that, and it's not gonna be homogeneous of course, but if we're able to do that, then our leverage and our contribution to the company um, business is actually increasing because we're able to do more with less. And there are various approaches to it. Uh, one of them is constantly um, uh, working against complexity basically constantly simplifying your ecosystem, constantly pushing the things that we've written in the past into the buy realm where we can leverage something else. Uh, and this, this way we don't, we don't have to just keep organically growing just because we have more and more and more on our plate. Okay. Hopefully that, sure. Do you, do you have a governance uh, framework and do you do chargebacks to your, your uh, customers? Uh, no, we do not. Um, uh, for Netflix, we only have one business, one, one product, and so everybody's priorities and motivations are really aligned. Um, we try to understand the different sort of cost contributions, if you will, like let's say if a particular algorithm runs, 
um, unusually large uh, chunk of our fleet overall. We try to understand why and then uh, try to optimize it, but there is no budgets and there is no chargeback mechanism. Also echo a great presentation, thank you so much. Um, you say central teams quite a bit, right? You know, the whole presentation's about central teams. Would you also say that you can classify those teams as DevOps teams with an internal customer being your development group? Mm -hmm. So lots of different teams, um, lots of different verticals being able to serve your internal. Absolutely, and uh, f for us, pretty much every, not, not every team, but majority of teams truly embrace the DevOps culture where they operate what they write. So the whole thing soup to nuts. At the same time, there are a few exceptions. For example, uh, in our uh, stateful tier, the database tier, we decided to centralize that operation because that was a very specialized knowledge. Historically, uh, we became a mostly Cassandra shop for uh, our key value store, uh, and trying to distribute that deep, deep knowledge of how to triage data issues was just impractical. Uh, but by and large, team truly run what they write. Um, one thing that interested me was when you were talking about communication, it's one of the things that seems frustrating to me is just being knowing what, what tools, uh, communicating what tools that we provide, and then also a lot of times knowing what tools other central teams provide. And I'm just going to ask if you go into more detail about what works and what doesn't work or what has, what it, what has been effective in communicating to other teams. Uh, so, thank you. So the, the question was about if basically what are the uh, nuances of effective communication. Uh, we're still learning. I, I don't think we're doing it well yet, at least as well as I would like to see. Uh, we're still finding gaps in awareness. We're still finding uh, misinterpretations uh, and just, just really the the, the spots where our communication does not make it through. Um, and there's so, so several aspects to it. One, I don't think we truly amplify the volume and the cadence of this. And so I don't think we're communicating enough. Now, there is a danger if you're trying to communicate too much because if you, if you let's say, you send out a newsletter every day, chances are it's gonna go straight to, gar straight to trash. But at the same time, if, if, you're, if people find your communication valuable, and applicable to what they do in daily lives, chances are they're gonna read it. So one trick that we found was super effective is the transition from comprehensive newsletters, if you will. Here's that everything that happened, all the changes, to distill it to as few of the most crucial, of the most important points as possible. Basically, if I'm on my phone and I see the newsletter, I should be able to see it on a single screen I should be able to glance to it and immediately distill of whether it's applicable and important to me. And then we find that people read it. If we're gonna send them a three-pager every week, it's going straight to trash. Hi. I was wondering if you've uh, experimented with uh, rotating members of local teams into central teams or vice versa or other strategies like co-locating um, and what benefits or challenges you've seen with that? It's a really great question, thank you. So the question was about whether we experimented with rotating members of central teams and placing them in alternate locations. And yes, and the, it worked really, really well for us. Internally, we call this practice embedding. Uh, and the way it works is that a member of a central team would join uh, a uh, application team or you know, a non-central team for a fairly prolonged period of time. We're talking six to nine months, at least. And then they're just a part of a team. They're not a liaison of central teams, they're just part of a team. And we found it really invaluable for two main benefits. One, that person is gonna learn firsthand in the trenches 
of what pain points people experience by utilizing central team solutions. They may think, you know, it's the best thing since sliced bread, but it may not actually work. At the same, at the same way, that person is gonna bring the latest and greatest knowledge from central teams into the application team and help us fill those knowledge gaps and awareness gaps that may exist. In the long term, there's even greater benefit because doing this embedding actually creates a super strong relationship between that team and the central teams. And so in the future where inevitable some conflicts will arise, some of our solutions may become insufficient, we know that they're gonna come to us first and say, hey, you're screwing up here, do better. Cool, thank you very much. Q&A is so good I came back for another one. Um, <clears throat> trying to tie two of your answers together, you had mentioned that your central teams grow but sublinearly to the rest of the organization. But also you had mentioned that from a budgeting perspective, you don't do chargebacks or anything like that to any other orgs. So where does the funding come from to be able to grow those central teams when the demand is high? And how do you measure and effectively decide, okay, we need to scale up this central team because X, Y, Z? Okay, let, let me repeat it back just to make sure I understand the question. Uh, what sort of signals are we looking for to decide that the teams may be underscaled? Uh, what are, what are the signals and then how do you determine to actually fund that team? What does that look like? Is it the central team's responsibility to do that or is there a, I guess, broader governance or another group that helps align that budget to the right spot? So we don't have a lot in the way of process. Uh, and so there isn't a very rigid one. It's effectively a combination of the signal of adoption rate and happiness that we get from our customers. And as well as trying to understand our product portfolio and see whether there are some major gaps that are present or whether the gaps are sort of nice to have or the ones that we, we're okay with. Our general preference is to run lean. Our general preference is not to try to overscale anticipation um, of future needs because then, you know, sort of idle hands problems, you might make solutions for problems that may not exist. Um, uh, at, but at the same time, we don't want to be sort of in a starving mode where we're unable to make any progress uh, forward and just sort of churning on the tickets or bug fixes, et cetera. And so it's up to each individual leader to figure out how well their team is staffed. Uh, we don't centralize the decision making. Uh, and the signal is really customer feedback. In the case of poor customer feedback or a lot of adoption of tools that are not provided by the central team, does Netflix ever retire centralized tool teams or do they have them move on to whatever seems to be more broadly adopted within the community? Um, so the, the question was whether um, when there is a lack of adoption, do we take basically centralize something that may already exist or do we write something that's more generic? So the question, let me try to provide an analogy here is that if you have a team that does a centralized build process. Mm -hmm. um, they build a technology or bring in external technology, but all of a sudden there's a high adoption rate of something else at mm -hmm. Netflix. Does that team then move on to that similar type of platform to provide support and enhance, or does that team essentially retire because their product is no longer being accepted in the marketplace? I see. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. So effectively, if there is something that really takes off across the company, um, but it's not originated in a centralized team. Uh, we don't have a prescribed formula for that in some cases in the past, and that, that happens actually, innovation comes from everywhere. Uh, sometimes we centralize the product. 
but the team remains doing what they were actually originally meant to do, part of the product uh, or service. Uh, of course, we would need to ramp up our numbers to successfully support it. In some case, the product transfers together with the team. And again, these are personal conversations with the engineers on the team of what they ultimately want to do. Do they want to continue with this product that now will be centralized to for all of Netflix, or do they want to continue with the charter of their particular business unit? And it's typically driven by that. Thank you. Hi, um, great presentation, thanks a lot. Um, I, I'm wondering how you handle your priorities of the work that the central team does. Do you get it from your customers or you look at what's going on in technology and saying, we think this is the best thing for Netflix to use? And how do you, how do you um, ba balance that need between what your customers have and the new technology? In the case of my company, I, I have to spend the next two weeks in therapy with my team who's all here at AWS because they want to use all the new stuff because it's cool. <laughs> so that's why I'm asking. Uh, thank you, this is, this is a great question. Effectively, the question is, how do we balance between customer requested priorities, business priorities, those two may not necessarily be the same, and the engineering-driven or technology priorities? And again, it has to be a balance. Whenever you get out of balance, that's when you have the issues, right? Um, It's a combination, it's effectively trying to be situationally aware, understand the landscape. And first and foremost, of course, I mean, we exist to help our business, right? And so we try to understand what are the primary business needs. And business needs, you don't want to look at just a very short term, you probably want to look at least a year to two years ahead. Then you want to understand the technology trends. You know, for example, uh, is, is now the, the, the critical mass adoption going to containers or maybe serverless is the thing. Or we can go more granular into specific frameworks and solutions. DynamoDB versus Aurora, et cetera. Uh, and then last but not least, you want to understand your immediate customer needs, right? And then this is where the role of really good product manager comes in. Because no matter what, if your teams is anything like mine, we always have more work than we have time in a day to do it. So some hard choices will need to be made. You're gonna to have to say no to a lot of things that will make some people unhappy. And that's inevitable. It's just being deliberate and really clear about it and then communicating after you made those deliberations and decisions, communicating it to the rest of the company. So they know not just what you're doing, so that the promises and commitments that you make, but also what you're explicitly not doing because those are equally, if not more important. Thanks for a great presentation. Um, I was just wondering if your security team is a central team, and do they have the same approach for the adoption of security tooling? I'm sorry, was it a security team? Security team, yes. Yes, so, so we have a centralized team uh, called InfoSec. Under that, there is actually a sub-team called Platform Security, and these are the teams that uh, push out the centralized solutions, let's say, for certificate management, trust management, um, and a whole bunch of uh, things. Um, we have to work very closely with that team because a lot of times they're embedded into libraries and services that we push out, a central platform team, and so it's a very close partnership. Hi. Uh, yeah, returning. Um, you've focused a lot about the freedom and the freedom of choice for the DevOps teams. Uh, you also mentioned that, yes, when they choose to do something else than what the centralized offers, it comes with a cost and responsibility. 
but how do you like in practical, of course you don't have to answer if you don't want to, how do you control that the poo doesn't go into the production? Okay. Or is it just one of those things that, well, those are the things that happen on your last day? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I'm almost out of time, and so let me take the mic down, and then I'll be happy to come down and answer it. Okay? Thank you very much. <laughs>